0: Welcome back to the HR Happy Hour Show. My name's Steve Bowes. I am joined by, of course, Trish McFarland. Trish, how are you today?
1: I'm good, Steve. How are you doing? I am
0: fantastic. It is uh, a great day uh, in HR Happy Hour HQ South. A little cold, colder than I'd like, but you know, fair enough. We're under threat, Trish. This has been interesting. I, oh, I know goodness. I promised that there'd be no more weather updates on the show. but I
1: was just going yeah, to say, yeah, what happened?
0: The last day we <laughs> recorded together with our guest, I was under Tornado Watch, right? You that were. Was, that was the excitement for that morning. Today, for North Carolina, this, this is almost even worse than Tornado Watch. We're under Potential Snow Watch. It may snow here today, which is shocking. That's, that's yes.
1: Oh, that's what I'm hearing. Okay. Yeah. So first of all, on behalf of all the listeners, I really was going to call you out about the weather thing because I thought we were finished with our weather updates. Yeah, we should be. Uh, However, awesome. <laughs> it seems like since you've moved, we get them more often, actually.
0: I need a hobby or a pet or a friend or something. I, I need something else to talk about probably. So, um, Did you
1: want to be a meteorologist? I feel like that's like your next no, you know, career or something. Matter. You really are interested in weather.
0: I want to work the carnival circuit cooking barbecue out of the back of my truck. That's what I really oh, I thought really you like were
1: going to be like, you know, in the, oh forget it. Sideshow right. Steve. no, <laughs> Calling swords or no, not really. Okay.
0: Yeah. I have very few skills. So let's talk <laughs> oh, yeah. about, Oh, so a couple quick announcements. Uh, HR happy hour show. We're doing great. Booking shows out for the rest of the Q2. Hit us up on Twitter at HR Happy Hour or contact us through the noon improved HR net site. Don't forget to add the HR Happy Hour show to your daily Alexa Flash Briefing News update. Trish has been rocking the Alexa shows lately too, by the way. So if you and I if tell you, have,
1: you if you haven't been listening to me, listen to her. That's the new favorite thing. I just recorded and posted another one um this morning. So eleven minutes ago, another new flash briefing went live. So Wow. Yeah, everyone should listen to it. It's a good three minutes. And okay. uh, I love it.
0: We'll check that out on your Alexa device. And finally, Trish, the HR Happy Hour Show is sponsored by our friends at Paychex. Paychex makes it simple for businesses of all sizes to pay and manage their employees. They make payroll easy and automatic, and they handle benefits programs as well. Paychecks guides businesses through their human resources challenges by keeping them up to date with ever-changing laws and regulations online and mobile, over the phone, in person, or any combination of the above. With Paychecks, they work with you the way you want to work, and you can learn more about them at paychecks.com. and many thanks to them. Ooh, all right, Trish. I think we're through the nonsense. I'll keep an eye out for the snow, but let's get on to it. We've got a cool guest waiting in the wings, uh, a friend of the, friend of the show. Uh, I think his first appearance on the HR Happy Hour. I think so. Paul first Rubenstein.
2: Time caller, long yeah. time listener.
1: Paul, uh, yeah. I, I just, love it.
0: Paul, and we decided, this is Paul Rubenstein from Vizier, Chief People Officer. Paul, we decided we, your extensive bio was so impressive. Rather than read the whole thing, I just want to call out two highlights. You've got more than 25 years of experience in consulting, and working in HR in many, many capacities. You also had a very, very successful one-man show that ran off-Broadway for several years. And were one of the key members of Biosphere 2 Project. So amazing stuff, Paul, in your background. Super impressive. Welcome to the HR Happy
2: Hour Show. Thank you for leaving out my appearance in an Adam Sandler film.
0: <laughs> no we're kidding we just we're we're, we're we're messing around with the bio but paul really do uh you have one of the most extensive and impressive bios of, of any guests we have on the show so maybe do tell us uh, and our listeners a little bit more about you and yourself before we get into some of the the topics today
2: you, you know steve i'm um steve trish well thank you for having me greetings from sunny vancouver yes it's sunny here even in nice. february oh, wow. um so i'm a first-time chief HR officer. Like this is my second career that I'm in right now. It's um, kind of unusual because um, it's really, I found it really tough. You know, all that time I spent in consulting truth is I actually had, you know, my first HR job I had was at a hotel company where I had to hire and interview dishwashers and housekeepers and explain people their benefits and fill out and have them fill out three part carbon forms I think if you you Google that on the internet for anyone under a certain age, you can figure out what that is. Right. Right. Um, And then uh, I had one of my coolest HR jobs was at HBO and it was actually the first place where I experienced this notion of reskilling. We'll come to that um, in a little bit because we're going to talk about skills. Right. Uh, I spent a lot of time in consulting doing like about half the work was like talent strategy work. Like how do you figure out, what your workforce should look like based on your business strategy and how it should change. And the other was good old school, how should the HR function operate? And I used to love that work. Mm -hmm. And uh, one year ago, one month and one year ago, I moved from Brooklyn to Vancouver, British Columbia to work at Vizier, where it's pretty cool. I mean, it's cool tech. It's all about human capital. It's about seeing patterns. It's about helping people tell the truth. Uh, and after all those years advising chief HR officers, I find myself in the seat and man, it's a pretty cool job. <laughs>
0: <laughs> I, I thought maybe you would, uh, say you, uh, after being in the seat for a year, you're thinking, boy, I, I wish I could go back and start hiring dishwashers again.
2: No, you know, it's funny, you know, you look at the job from the outside and all you see, and I swore I'd never do this. Um, I just, you know, saw some of the, I saw some of the good stuff that chief HR officers had to put up with, but I also saw some of the ugly, ugly stuff. And I was like, oh no, I could never handle that. It's been great.
1: I think that it's really interesting though, kind of having both that experience at the beginning of your career and then being a consultant, I think you're going to bring a really different perspective to some of those things because sometimes like, I was a little bit the flip, right? So I I started out in HR. I kind of grew up there and and spent almost 20 years doing it. And by the time I got to that role, it really was kind of dealing with a lot of the worst of the worst. And I was a little bit, I don't know, it can get to you over you over a number of years. So maybe it's actually a little bit better or more interesting doing it the way you're doing it because you're not so jaded from having been in that role forever and ever, right? So you're bringing a little bit of a fresh perspective from, as a consultant, working probably with hundreds of companies over the years, right? You, You're bringing you must... a more diverse perspective to that top level role. I, I think it's a really interesting approach.
2: I, I would say there's actually two things um, that I shaped my experience in this. Part of it was, yeah, the working on talent issues for other HR functions. But I, I have to say, when I was leading a PL at Aon Hewitt, um, leading a business, where I was responsible for all the decisions outs- that had nothing to do with HR. Even though we were HR consultants, man, did I learn a lot of great lessons. That was the flip side of having to deal with HR at a high level, not as like a line manager, or I can't get someone's raise approved, or I can't, you know, or I want to change a policy. But really from the strategic level of the workforce and how much we can afford and the trade-offs you have to make, that was that was a really valuable um, experience. I left that out of the bio, didn't I?
0: <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs>
2: so, so I used to run part of Aon Hewitt's, uh, um, a small, I mean, Aon Hewitt at the time was huge. So I used to run um, the leadership business, the assessment business, a couple other things there. So it was it was cool. It was a great experience.
0: Yeah. I believe that's kind of when I first met you, Paul, you were doing yeah. that uh, back at Aon. Yeah. That was um that that was a really interesting time for sure the um say so paul seriously so what we want to talk about beyond yeah. your extensive you know your your, your theatrical work your ex, you awesome. know <laughs> your experience as an explorer we can get to all those things later but as a as a head of hr and as someone who's been in the hr business for a long time and kind of advising organizations etc like we've talked about obviously you know the, the subject of the skills gap the inability of organizations to kind of find the people and retain the people they need and have skills are evolving, et cetera, et cetera. That's a huge topic in the business. It's a huge topic in HR. It's a big topic in HR tech. We'll be talking about it this fall at HR tech extensively. And there's a real connection here or a link to some, a more fundamental kind of idea, which is workforce planning. And I thought we would start by talking about that, just workforce planning, sort of a little bit in general, kind of where it's at and maybe why it's maybe why it's not always worked and, and, and supplied organizations with the insight that they need in order to try to meet the gaps that they have uh, in their capabilities. So maybe we'll start there.
2: Uh, so, uh, you know, go back early days, HR, uh, do you ever see one of those workforce plans 20 years ago? Cause I used to have to produce them and it would be um, green bar or printed out uh, in a binder and it would sit on someone's shelf. Here is our workforce plan for the next three years. Nobody really looked yeah. at it because the decisions you were making were so quick. You were only hiring, uh, you know, most of the hiring uh, that people do, unless you're opening a new call center or opening a new geography or something. Most of it is like, what? how do I fill the job in front of me? In the middle of that, you're not looking at your workforce binder that's collecting dust. Um, and, you know, technology helped. Excel helped. Uh and the workforce plans, but they were still they were still long range workforce plans, most of them, and they were a lot about headcount. Yeah. Uh, if you think about the currency for you know in mergers and acquisitions, you know back in the day, and the way a lot of companies are measured by the management consulting firms, you go in and you do a spans and layers analysis, right? How many people? How should I benchmark? How many people I need in a production function, etc. So headcount is a huge, it was, was what workforce planning is about, but headcount doesn't tell the story of cost. Not every headcount number is equal and headcount also is about power, right? You know, the more, you know, the more headcount you have, the higher you are in the organization, the more money you will personally make. It's only when companies started realizing that it was about cost and value um and started switching and that's what we're seeing a lot of especially in our clients here right you know mm-hmm. stop counting heads count dollars money ball right you know what value can i get for um this how do i do salary cap planning hey you have a million dollars i don't care how many heads you have how much work can you get out of that million dollars this has led to skill and task planning and so you see this you know transition over time to say i d- Don't just tell me how many people I have. Tell me how much they cost and what are the alternatives and tell me what their component capabilities are matched against the tasks, not the jobs, because jobs are starting to get deconstructed, but matched against the tasks. That's a very different sort of chain than people are used to. It's complicated.
0: Yeah, Paul, that is complicated. And I just would reiterate kind of the the headcount trap, right? I can certainly remember like everything pivoted around that number. Like you couldn't do anything, uh, no matter, even even the places I work, you needed budget dollars to do anything. But if you didn't also have that headcount budget number where it needed to be, even if you had extra dollars, you couldn't you couldn't bring in more people if you needed them because your headcount number hadn't been uh, increased, right? And uh, it was crazy how much of a trap that 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 total number of headcount uh, yeah. organizations in. And we see the reverse too.
2: We see companies that want to invest in automation, right, and they're they're like, "Oh, you know, um, maybe we can't we, we don't want to we want to spend money." Can you spend headcount dollars on and build the automation yourself instead of buying technology that's already proven, et cetera? We see this a lot in IT functions. You know, it's, uh, you know, the headcount dollars become fixed because if you give them up, people are afraid you'll never get them back.
0: Yeah. Yeah. I, like, of course. That's, yeah.
1: That's the key. Yeah. Everyone's well, I, always been trained to, you know, people in leadership now, that's how we all grew up, right? That you don't want to get rid of the headcount no matter what, even if it's not a good person, even if it's not the most... Productive that you can be, if once you lose it, that's it. You're probably never going to get it back. So it's really hard to do something better when it's really going to be an overall loss.
2: Well, so so this is, this is what's interesting about this, right? It's so the speed of business, just because you had a headcount, right? The thing that comes along with most headcount is what I call the four walls of a job, right? So you're a manager, you got five employees, you got Mary, Joe, Jane, Bob, and Robert. I don't know why you have a Bob and Robert, but that's going to make it confusing. <laughs> but let's talk about Robert. I don't know. We've got like seven Zacks at this company. It's very confusing yeah. to me. Um, so we got, you know, Robert leaves. You immediately, your reflex is to say, oh, let me replace Robert. Here's what Robert was good at or bad at. Maybe I can tweak it around, but, you know, you may want to, you may want to, in the new hire, compensate for the shortcomings of Robert, but what you didn't do is just say, well, what is Robert's work really? I was paying Robert a hundred grand. Do I really need to pay that much for it? Can I deconstruct that work and send it to the rest of my people and actually pay them more because they have bigger jobs? Should I split Robert's work into two or one and a half, or should I take Robert's work and, you know, you know, and do a three-year payback on something that automates it? That's a, that's a real moment of truth that has to happen for us to appreciate skills and be even flexible and fungible with skills, right? Where are you going to put these reskilled people if you don't rethink the jobs themselves? Did that make sense?
0: Yeah, I think it did, Paul. And, and I think that's the challenge, right? It, because the, the natural instinct is to say, okay, Robert has left, Robert did these seven things, right? According to his job description. And so let's now just find another person to do those same seven things without really thinking about what do those seven things mean? Do we still need to do all of them? Can we do them differently? Can other people do some of them? Will these seven things be needed six months from now, right? And, and do we need, how do we think a little bit more ahead if we can, right? And, and so we need that. Look, technology helps because you're able to track the dollars better
2: than you can. You can turn around and say, oh, you you know, uh, it was easy to head count numbers are easier to follow than dollar numbers. Um, People are more trusting of head counts because you can always lay someone off, right? right? The more people you have, if you deconstruct, the more people we have to lay off. Well, you know, a lot of people are getting better at avoiding layoffs by good workforce planning. They're more comfortable with natural attrition. They know where to stop a job if in two or three, you know, years or one year, um, that skill isn't going to be needed anymore. Um, that's, that's the real practical part of workforce planning. Uh, we had a, um, one of our clients who makes uh, airplanes, there was, he was telling me a story. He's like, yeah, you know, people routinely, you know, we worked for a company and it was all about headcount, headcount, headcount. We had a guy take a VP job apart and fund three new jobs that actually made a difference in quality. That's big. I know that seems small, but that's how companies change, grow and outperform.
0: And and I think, I think certainly thinking about roles and job descriptions and, and the kinds of people that we need in the organization, it seems like it needs to change. Maybe even, even as business and as skills requirements and as technology changes, those rapid changes, are going to drive the need for HR leaders and, and talent planners, et cetera, to, to adapt and change even more rapidly, right? I just feel like, like all, all that we're talking about, no matter what type of business we're in or what's our role in the business is how it's being impacted slash disrupted slash changed, right? And, and one of the things, Paul, we said uh, in, the, in the pre-show we wanted to talk a little bit about is agility, uh, organizational agility, individual agility, learning agility, the, the, the ability to kind of adapt and be, to be faster and quicker. I, I'd love for you to talk a little bit about that and, and understanding what does that actually mean in the organization? And then how can HR leaders kind of strengthen the organization's ability to be more agile? Okay, well, let
2: me ask you a question. Can you teach an old dog new tricks?
0: I think so, <laughs> but it depends on the dog. <laughs> Fresh,
2: what do you think? <laughs> Exactly. It depends on the dog, right? you got to get a dog that has learning agility. Uh, we prefer poodles in our house, by the way. No. Um, they're <laughs> agile, they always teach them new tricks. Uh, but, you know, this is funny. Like, one of the things I learned in the assessment business is, you know, what are, people are assessing all kinds of different stuff. But what's really valuable? To me, I look for learning agility. I look for people who can learn new things. You know, um, what's the value... So if we hire often, you know, we're in a pressure to hire somebody who knows how to do something already and we value that skill and we don't even look for the ability to learn to do things because we're in such a rush to have somebody who's already figured it out. But learning agile people, they can deliver results in a new situation the first time. That's the beauty of somebody who is good at figuring stuff out. They're curious. They want to learn new skills they're curious about change in an organization. They're curious about working with different types of people. Um, And they're curious about how to even think about the problem, right? They're the type of people who will deconstruct the work and um, think about it in a new way. So on the front end, if we want skills agility, if we wanna be a transferable skills organization, if we want fluidity in our workforce, if we want fungibility, hire people with learning agility and nurture it. Was that a rant?
0: No, I, I, it was not a rant. I was, but I, I think it makes perfect sense, right? Is, is if the work is going to be changing and we know that right through all these disruptions, you know, that, that we're, we're seeing come on the horizon and are, are going to keep coming that the only way for the organization to, to be able to adapt to changes in its market and its its industry and its, its ways of working is to, is to find more people who are, or sort of, inclined to, to think that way themselves, right? And I guess that's the one part of the challenge is finding the people who are going to be a little bit more agile, a little more open, a little more receptive to doing new things. And, and the second part, I think, too, ties back to the workforce planning discussion that we're having as well is, can the organization also think a little bit more uh, broadly, a little more openly, a little more creatively about how they organize work and, and, and define work and define roles?
2: So, you know, I used to get this about, Paul, oh, we can't do a workforce plan. We're not really sure what we're going to need um, three years from now. So what's right. the kind of a workforce plan? We don't, The business is only able to tell us the jobs we're going to have the next year or two years for most businesses in this sort of volatile, uncertain world, or what's the acronym? VUCA? Yeah, the VUCA, yeah. VUCA. Right. I, had, I had VUCA last night in an Italian restaurant. It was
1: great. <laughs> um,
2: let me go back and talk about that challenge of planning, you know, three years out. Uh, I often think of it, like, do you ever see a hurricane map and you got that line and you got a line a little to the left and a little to the right? right. Yeah, the, the the cone of uncertainty, the, right? The cone of uncertainty, <laughs> the confidence, whatever you want to call it, right? So that, that cone, um, I, I usually call it the cone of local news reports making people panicky. Right. Um, the... I think HR has a responsibility to advise the business when they're hiring people to look a little bit to the left and a little bit to the right of the job designs that they're looking for. Um, and the further you go out and think about the future, the, you, you should hedge a little bit. Um, for instance, you know, think about uh, computer languages. It used to be you would hire somebody who knew a specific language right now. I remember the great. Uh, remember Y2K, and all the COBOL, CICS programmers. They were going to be out of work because it was all about object-oriented programming. And then, oh no! Now it was you know Java, and now it's agile. And well, agile is actually the right word. Nobody hires programmers just because they know a specific language anymore. Right. They hire because they plan that they might need to know a couple of languages, or they're planning for the language that might not have been written or adopted yet, or the technique that might not have been written or adopted yet.
0: Yeah, Uh, as an aside, Paul, that always that reminds me of that old trope about like hiring managers or job descriptions that ask for like five years of experience in a programming language that's only existed for three, you know, those (laughs) kinds of things. (laughs) I I think you know, people need to,
2: people need to think about that. You know, it's the old, a lot of people used to talk about this Is you know, do I want a, um, you know, I like to hire athletes. I used to hear, you know, certain executives talk about that. Hire an athlete, not a baseball player, not a football player. I want, oh God, sports references are really bad with me and any of my friends who are listening right now are thinking, <laughs> uh, but, and I don't want to go like Michael jo- Jordan trying golf because I don't think that worked out too well, did it? Not what, great. Not super in this crowd. Okay. Yeah, not, not great. So, you know, here's here's the thing. Like, What is nice about computer languages, though, is they all had names, right? Skills taxonomy is really hard. One of the things that, everyone is struggling with in HR technology is the interplay between job codes and skills taxonomy. One of the biggest debts that every HR function owes is cleaning up the job code table. I know that sounds really mundane, but you know, it's not unusual to have 10,000 employees and 7,000 job codes. Mm -hmm. And so think about the commonality of the skills underneath those job codes. What's the taxonomy for that? Look at ONET. Did you ever, you know, uh, um, scroll through that and all the different jobs are in there? And that's pretty good. That's pretty clean. That has a the right level of granularity and specificity. But if we're going to deconstruct work into skills, we need a taxonomy that allows for a common language. If we're going to take all this stuff and put resumes, CVs, the CVs of the future, which are about skills, capabilities, learning, you know, learning agility scores, assessment scores, et cetera. If we're going to take that and we're going to put that up in a blockchain, we need a common language to read it, put it into all of our different HRIS systems and make sense of it. That's a big task. But I think that's the, the next big thing HR has to conquer.
1: I think that's, I think you're you're absolutely spot on because I think one of the things too, I mean, in thinking about, you mentioned blockchain, how having this focus more on the specific skilling or reskilling is going to allow you maybe to have different combinations than more of the rigid structure that we would have seen 10 or 20 years ago when we it, were thinking about it more in terms of like a specific job. And now what you're talking about now is really, Kind of like the deconstructed version of that. It also
2: different. it also reduces friction in the um, employment market. If right. we are able to have sort of absolute verifiable common language about skills, capabilities, et cetera, and the transfer of that information happens faster and faster. It's great. It also powers diversity because it allows us to see beyond race, gender, et cetera and have a common language with some level of objectivity about looking at someone's skills. This benefits us all. It's all about fairness, right? The data don't
0: lie.
1: Hey, <laughs> I've got I've got it, a, kind of
0: a I've got kind of a different question, and, and maybe hopefully not going to pull a fast one on you because this was not in the notes, but I thought about it as you as you guys were talking, you know, especially about kind of um, rethinking job codes and needing to kind of understand how job codes need to work in relationship to what what the the new currencies are really, which which are skills and, and capabilities, and. I just wonder how much or little in, in you think about how how work is changing impacts this whole kind of process of workforce planning and skills capability definition and gap analysis when we hear much much more about work being done more in teams of people that kind of form and then 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 break up and then they form again and more work that's project based instead of just traditionally functional functionally based like is is that it feels to me like that makes all of this even harder for, say, the workforce planner or the talent planner as well. The idea that that what people are doing day-to-day, week-to-week is changing more frequently, if that makes yeah. sense.
2: Yeah. So um, you ever go uh, into a kitchen and you see misen, you know, the mise en right? You see all of those nice little stacked de Marie's uh, with mm-hmm. all the different ingredients in front of them um, because you might get a special order, right? And or you might want to create tonight's special or you may you may want to recombine um, those, you know, the stuff you have for a standard dish into a new dish. Right. Because if all you order is prepackaged dishes, you can't um, create new dishes. What is and this is where workforce planning turns into skills. What are the skills and capabilities to meet a market demand for a product that you think you'll need? put the people together in the in a room. Um, and I tell you, you hire smart people, give them some freedom and autonomy, have them, uh, but connect them to the same North Star. Mm-hmm. They'll figure stuff out. So I don't know, do you hire jobs? Do you hire teams? Um, we recently hired a whole team at Vizier. We didn't hire it. We, we, uh, we hired eight people all at once. Uh, who, you know, they were, um, there was a corporate action somewhere else. And we were like, that's a team. Interesting. Uh, we didn't hire the jobs and they're awesome. They do cool stuff, but their value wasn't, we weren't trying to fill a job. We had a market need for a for some you know, product capability and they were already a cohesive team. We didn't reconstruct their jobs. We didn't do a blueprint. We didn't do an org chart. We just said, Hey guys, you're like a little pod.
0: <laughs> we'll without no. giving away everything did you did you interview them all individually or did just kind of just bring them all in as a group how did that work oh well, we kind of know them we, they came up all individually
2: and uh, i'm sorry they came up all at once and we we're like join our team
1: see i think now that could be a whole nother show but i think that that's there's something to be said for that because without organizations really doing that very often i mean that's pretty unique that you approached it in that way i mean i think that's a clear competitive advantage that you're even open to doing that yeah. Um, it sure. it made me think of, um, I used to work on a team that was very cohesive, I like the word use pod. And once we all went to work for ourselves or other people, um, we still, you know, five, six years later, are a team, we view ourselves as a team, we refer to ourselves as a team, and we seek out work together as a team, even though we're lo- no longer with that employer. So I wonder too, is that something the more that um, companies might struggle to think about who to hire because they're thinking of it individually? Is that truly the competitive advantage to just go after teams?
2: Well, yeah, look, I, teams I think stay together
1: no matter what. Right. No matter who the paycheck comes from.
2: I think you first of, look, you have to be opportunistic. We were we were right place, right time for something like that. But you have to be open to that idea. Right. That idea does not fit your headcount plan.
0: <laughs> I, you know that, that, that that's exactly what i was going to say cuz cuz you brought in an eight person pod right but if you were constrained by a, a workforce plan or a budget that said you had headcount spots for five people say cuz that's what someone figured out you would need that many people to perform that work you were going to be stuck
2: yeah let's let's come out the other side of this too right because everybody talks about turnover and you know it's expensive to hire somebody new so when you are planning your work for skills transferability, when you hire people who have a learning agility, even your willingness, let's say you have people who have fixed skills. If you're willing to look at it like the chef looks at the mise en place and say, I'm going to recombine these skills into a new job. I may even be creating a new product because I happen to have these skills um, laying around. People and their skills are the new raw material from which products can be made today. You may spin off a new business because you, you have this excess capacity of skills that are undervalued in the market that you didn't even think, but you already have. I don't know. You don't know where it's going. So that's one part of it. And the other prize is mobility. Mobility is a great way to reduce, reduce turnover and increase engagement. And I don't mean just mobility to a new job, which is great if you're learning agility and you're flexible about skills, fungibility, but mobility within a job, your job changing. Um, create amazing relationships. Those are really important things for the future.
0: Yeah. And it's, it's a lot to kind of put your arms around, right? Cause we've talked about yeah. a number of different kind of pr- traditional kind of HR concepts or processes or functions. And it just feels like all of them are, in a way almost under siege, right? Like the way we traditionally planned and budgeted for our workforce, the way we traditionally tried to find people and hire them, the way we kind of uh, defined our jobs, right? And and even the way we kind of managed people's career plan through an organization, seems like everything is subject to big changes.
2: HR gets in the way and the consulting industries get in the way and often the technology firms in HR get in the way, right? Think about it. We love the action reason code of why someone's moving from one job to another and we better find a reason that it fits. We right. love our pay grades and ranges and job levels. And we love, adding, you know, reviewing job descriptions for different points. We love benchmarking. How can I make this new job? I can't even find a benchmark for it. Yeah. Like that stuff happens. And it's the inertia of existing practices that often holds back the agility and innovation of organizations. So, you know, I, I mean, I hate to bring it back to workforce planning. If you workforce plan at a headcount level rather than something a little more fluid like cost or skills, you're always going to have that fixed mindsets and fixed headcount.
0: All right, so Paul, I know we can't solve everyone's problems in a you know forty minute conversation or a podcast, but I mean. For organizations that are really now thinking, okay, in, in times of rapid change, difficulty in finding people and retaining people with the right skills we need, knowing that, okay, if they sort of accept the fact that, hey, the way we've been doing our planning process and, and, and trying to align our talent with our business strategy is not really working, what, where do you sort of begin? What would be the first couple yeah. things you would recommend folks doing to try to start making a pivot towards sort of the new way work and people need to be managed?
2: So I think the first thing uh, is get uh, HR and finance in a room together. Um, talk about the interplay of headcount versus cost and make sure we're not um, controlling costs in a way that um, limits creative thinking. Uh, if somebody comes to you for a job, it isn't, you know, actually don't open the headcount immediately. Make them say, hmm, how could I handle this headcount differently? What if I broke it into two jobs? Uh, make them stop and think at least, create that pause that creates the possibility for a new outcome rather than just filling that next job. Mm-hmm. Second is, um, you know, be open, HR and finance together, be open to creative ways of staffing things. Uh, it may not match neatly to last year's budget. It may not fit in the same line, but be open to creativity. Don't let those things hold you back. Third, on the front end, think about what are you hiring for? Am I hiring um, for what I need now? Am I hiring for what I need tomorrow? Am I hiring somebody who's capable of learning something new? And then finally, take a pause. How does work really get done? Do the job descriptions actually manage, do the job descriptions actually describe how the work that's happening or was it just a recruiting tool? That's a good start.
0: I think those are great, great pieces of advice, Paul, to take on a, a complex and, and, and sometimes like maybe even feeling overwhelming kind of process, especially, you know, you made the analogy earlier in, in the conversation about you've got the, the 7,000 job codes out there, right? And 10,000 people. It's like, oh my God, this is just so daunting,
2: right? I can't. I
0: am hopeful, Steve. Yeah.
2: <laughs> I am I am actually really hopeful um, you know, we are entering a golden age for HR where, you know, it's not about all the projects and change isn't about the efficiency of HR. It's about HR's impact on talent um, with the technologies, you know, at the point where it's usable to predict things, interpret things. You can start to, uh, you know, understand what's going to happen in your turnover and um, use things to predict your workforce plan rather than guess
0: it. Great stuff, Paul. Uh, really appreciate you taking some time to be with us uh, a Pleasure. In, in your busy schedule. Um, how's the one-man band business going? Is that still the thing or you know, not so every, much anymore?
2: Every time I step on the cymbal uh, and try to you know, hit the bass drum with the other foot, uh, they keep sliding apart and
0: my stool is getting worn out. Nice. Aww. Nice. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, again, thanks so much, Paul. Great conversation. Really great topic. I'm glad we were able to spend a little bit of time on it. We, um, you can learn more about what's going on over at Vizier, of course, at vizier.com Clarity. They've got a lot of great content out there, a lot of great insights, uh, research-based stuff, just really good, good stuff that uh, Paul and the team over at Vizier get out there. So thanks to Paul and to them for that. Uh, Trish, we got to thank our friends at Paychecks, of course. Uh, thanks for uh, sponsoring the HR Happy Hour Show. Uh, You can learn more about them at www.paychecks.com. Trish, any last words from you
1: before we say goodbye? No, just thank you, Paul, for coming on the show. This was a great topic. I mean, obviously more to come. Um,
0: See you you in Vegas. Absolutely. See you in Vegas.
1: (laughs) Absolutely.
0: All right. Remember to subscribe to the HR Happy Hour wherever you get your podcasts. For Trish McFarlane, for our guest, Paul Rubenstein, my name is Steve Bowes. We will see you next time on the HR Happy Hour show. And bye for now. Thanks for listening to the HR Happy Hour Show, your source for information and conversation on work, the workplace, technology, and more. Learn more and listen to all the show archives at www.hrhappyhour.net.